Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We've got a good one today. Chatterbox, where we dive into a lot about provincial politics with Alan Carter, Sabrina Nanji. New poll results that are real interesting, exclusive to Global News, show the Liberals may be making a fight of this. The Conservatives have lost some seats and their majority somewhat compromised by a lot of those ejections out of the uh, Conservative caucus. It's going to play a factor six weeks from now. We might have a real interesting June 2nd evening, whereas we may not have anticipated it prior to now. But it looks like the fight's on, and it's Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals potentially leading that fight. So we'll go there. John Spencer, fantastic Iraq War veteran, former major in the U.S. Army, will join us and talk about Russia-Ukraine and why he feels Ukraine still is almost getting underrated, if you will, when it comes to combat and what can be accomplished here. All that and more, the Toronto Today podcast starts now. I want to comment on these new poll numbers that Dave mentioned in the news about the uh, general election that's coming up and it is coming up fast on june 2nd um we've got obviously a little bit of movement here really good i don't know how it's bad news it's good news for the liberals it's not terrible news for the uh progressive conservative party of ontario and i don't think it's good news at all for the ndp but but i think the undecided amount still puts everything up for grabs. I think there's a lot of people still weighing options here. This is me saying this uh, anecdotally, but also hearing from you as listeners and (coughs) excuse me, talking to people that are out there uh, discussing these things is there's a definitive indecision about where to go with this election. Some of it's about the next couple weeks. That's for sure. Some of it is about deciding what the last couple years have meant to you at a certain point in time. So let me give you those numbers that uh, and Dave referenced them. Right now, if the election were held tomorrow, so it's not right now, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario would get 35% of decided voters. That's down only three points. So they're not suffering. That's a mild, that's not a sea change. That's a mild transgression, if you will. Stephen Del Duke and his Liberal Party have got a little bit more support, so they can feel good about this. 32% of voters. I should point out, and I'm actually I'll come back to the Kathleen Wynne comparison in a second, and that's what you can see already what the conservatives are trying to do. Tie Stephen Del Duca like an anchor, like you're thro- like you're throwing like you're throwing an anchor into the water to keep your boat in the same spot. They're trying to tie Kathleen Wynne to Stephen Del Duca. That's good politics. That's smart politics. There's imagery they're using in ads that is going to be compelling to people. Okay, nobody's really mud wrestling yet. I don't find that there's and I didn't think there was last time. I didn't think there was a lot of mean spirited character assassination here. I didn't. uh, People are charged up in Ontario. That's for sure about about policy and about the pandemic and about who's who's spoken up when. Of course, all that's true. But the liberals being up four points, uh, the NDP is only down one point. And the Green Party would get 5% of the vote. So the NDP has 23, Greens 25, Liberals 32, Conservatives 35. It's really important to point out that 7% say they're not voting in the election. <laughs> we can't we can't get those people out. And by the way, it'll be a lot more than 7%. Take a guess. Well, I take a sip of water. Take a guess at how many, how many people stayed home in 2018. It'll it'll be Whatever you think it is, I'm going to give you about three seconds, and whatever you think it is, is a higher number. What do you, how, give me the percentage you think didn't vote in 2018, and I'll count to three. 
Wrong. It's 56.67% that voted, which means 43 and a third percent didn't even bother. Eligible voters that didn't bother voting. We got a lot of people in the province. Okay, we got almost 15 million people. And Doug Ford won a vast majority government with 76 seats with 2.3 million votes. I know a lot of those, some of those people are under 18. They're not eligible to vote. I got you right there with you. Here's what I think about these numbers. And I do think uh, several things become quite obvious at this point in time. This isn't bad news for Doug Ford. You'd be in big trouble if you were an incumbent and you were trailing. But incumbents that lead tend to be incumbents that win, even this late in the game. I don't think there's much. I don't think you're going to see a poll that sees the Del Duca liberals pass Doug Ford and the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. I don't think that that's true. Now, when we talk about the pandemic and the influence on voting, I do think over the next six weeks, this is this is sad to say, but we've talked about the idea of rooting for chaos before. I don't love that you have to root for chaos to have things happen. But remember, the Democrats were doing this in the pandemic in 2020 uh, with the Donald Trump uh, administration. Little bit of indecision about the vaccines. Throw that in the water supply. And they did that. Kamala Harris said, I'm not taking a vaccine while Donald Trump's president. I don't trust it. And then when Joe Biden became president, get your vaccines. Here they are. Here that we can, we've got enough. That was happening. We like we know that that was happening. So when schools opened in January, people looked at that and or closed in January and then reopened in the middle of the month. People looked at both sides of the politics. The conservatives looked at polling, I'm told, in early January and said, People are still concerned. And if you flood the hospitals, if you flood the hospitals with sick people this deep into the pandemic, not last spring, and I'll talk about that in a sec, not last spring, you flood the hospitals, you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble with voters. And if schools are closed longer than these two weeks. So they needed that two weeks. I didn't like it. I didn't like it one bit. I don't think it was necessary. And I... Like, it's difficult to call it a mistake. It wasn't a political mistake because I don't think it was costly because what happened when we reopened schools? January 17th across the province. We had a big snowstorm here, so we didn't open in the GTA till January 19th. But when we did that, was everybody saying, oh, fantastic, now's the time? No, they weren't. The NDP said, we're not sure if it's safe to go back or not. It was. We didn't, you know, we saw teachers unions say, oh, I don't, we're, we're not sure about this at all. This is so dangerous. I don't think we, and everything worked out just fine. Now, BA2 changed that game a little bit. You can have a conversation about the mask mandate, but our numbers held. Our ICU numbers are still holding. And you can make the case, well, the Ford government, I'm disappointed. Uh, I wish the mask mandate was still around. I point you once again, as I often do, to the province of Quebec where they're mask mandating like it's the middle of 2021 and we're all getting our first and second shots and their hospitalizations are higher per capita. Their ICUs have tripled. ICU numbers have tripled uh, in Quebec and they've held steady here in Ontario. I don't have a great explanation for why that is, but the important thing is neither will the Liberals or the NDP. I would strategize if I'm Stephen Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, and this is my political strategy here, without having a dog in the fight, without being affiliated with the party, and while still feeling very politically homeless right now, you dig in on the conservatives for the things they didn't do in 2020 and 21. 
fighting culture wars about what we do over the next two months is going to be a losing proposition at the ballot box. You can make promises here and promises there, but you're going to have to talk more about things that are, how would I put it? You're going to have to talk about things that are high impact and that won't have much of a backlash. Arguing about cloth masks on six-year-olds is high backlash and low impact. It is. Talk about the things that you want to get fixed, and there are many of them. Talk about the things that were neglected, and there are several of those things as well. That, to me, is the winning strategy. But when I read these numbers, I don't think it's bad news for the Conservative Party of Canada. I think it's impressive news for the Del Duca liberals. They would never be able to have as as unsustainable and awful an election result as they had in 2018. They went from 55 seats to seven. Their percentage was 19.57. So when we see the NDP dropping, they're going to hemorrhage some seats here. They had 40. They fell to, uh, they gained 40 from 18. They had a gain of 22. I don't think they're going to lose all of those 22, but I know they're going to lose half of those seats at least. Listen, if the NDP has 30 seats on June 2nd, on June 3rd on the show, I'll tell you I was dead wrong about that. But that's not what I see with some of the numbers. And when you drill down into some of the 416-905 numbers, seats that they've held, I think they can hold some seats. I think Kristen Wong-Tam, who we had on the show this week, is going to hold her seat. Okay, But the liberals are not going to sit there with seven seats. We know that. And the conservatives, the, the, the Ontario PCs, don't need 76 seats. In fact, they've lost some seats already. Randy Hillier, Roman Baber, all these things that have happened during the pandemic. Right now, they've got 67 seats. They need 63. And I don't see them. I see them gaining in some spots, and I see them losing. It'll be very close to a majority government. I think 70 is too ambitious for the conservatives to have. I don't think it's the blowout election that it was in 2018. But the question then will be, would the NDP and liberals go old school and have a coalition government like 1985 and like Bob Ray and David Peterson did? I don't have a good answer for that. And I know that if the conservatives play that angle like you could have a coalition government, if you don't like the Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, quote-unquote political marriage, don't take any chances and vote blue. That's the strategy I would utilize if I'm Doug Ford. But as well, I'd stop worrying about some of the things that the public has moved on from, doesn't want to go backwards on, whether it was right or wrong in mid-March. Time will tell. Time is telling right now. But what you can't do is go back and uh, and take the car back to the previous destination and make a decision from there. I don't think that's going to be that easy to do at that point in time. Do you give me uh, just a minute on this study that I found really interesting about pandemic drinking? And I think this is the quote here. This one says women have let themselves get way out of control with drinking. And I'd make the case that it's been understandable that it's happened. And for the most part, I think we look and say lines have been blurred about spacing. Lines have been blurred about work. And this is the quote that's, that pays off for me. A expert when it comes to uh, drinking and alcohol counseling says this. They're seeing more and more women come in to see them for help. The study is in the Washington Post uh, I saw yesterday afternoon. There's been a blurring between home and work. It's a lot easier to sit at home and drink than in the office. And COVID has been particularly hard on women, with women dropping out of the workforce at greater numbers than men and family responsibilities falling predominantly on women. I could make the case based on that quote. Let me read that again really quick. Women dropping out of the workforce at greater numbers than men and family responsibilities falling predominantly on women. 
Men then, I mean, by definition, are taking on economic responsibilities to keep the mortgage afloat, to pay for the car, to pay for kids' sports, to pay for college tuition. All that ends up being true. If, if, if we're talking about family responsibilities and we're talking about a she session, there's massive pressure on men to keep the house afloat. What other explanation would there be? You can't have it both ways. Both stats would, would, would not correlate together. But I think it's really significant that that's the case. And they're right. You'd feel really strange walking past somebody's office and seeing someone pouring themselves a glass of wine in the workplace. That wouldn't happen unless you're celebrating a birthday. It's Friday afternoon. It's the office Christmas party, all that stuff. But we're not doing that. But it is a ton easier for people. Listen, I used to work with a a radio partner who would have a couple glasses of wine at lunch. And then you're coming on the air in the afternoon. Well, he's sort of, you know, he's working from home. He's the original WFHer. And I'm like, this isn't great. Like two turns into four pretty quickly sometimes. And that's what this survey is telling us. That's what this survey is telling us. And it's more women than men, which you might be surprised by. But the experts aren't because they're saying there's a lot of things to there's a lot of things that's fault that are falling on women. Online learning. Are you kidding? You need a drink by 12 noon if you're a woman, not a man, and you're sitting at home handling all that stuff. Our own executive producer, uh, Jason Chapman, uh, joins us right now. Look, I don't blame you for branching out. I don't blame you for also trying to get a better deal with the dealership. Have you already called like some sales guy hustler who's listening to this segment? You're just going to there's going to be some uh, some fluffing happening now. Where is this going to go? Radio, the prosperous industry it is right, pal, the prosperous industry that we're in or car sales. Literally a place where you can make a bucket load of money. Can you really, though? Uh, Selling fossil fuel, outdated, frustrating, gas guzzling. I would have said years ago, it's a tough slog. But this is my, yes, we are looking for a a car. We actually bought a car, whoop-dee-doo, on Monday. So no, I'm not looking for a deal. Oh, okay. But honest to goodness, Okay, maybe an extended warranty pitch is happening here. Or maybe you're trying to get some free free cruise control thrown in here. I don't know. No, what's wild to me is I, I hate walking onto a car lot usually. And anywhere where I'm going to be approached by somebody who's on commission, it, it, my wife loves it. She is a great bargainer. I don't get why we bargain for cars, but not a bag of milk. But anyways, I don't like bargaining, but the car salespeople are totally different than you saw two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20, oh. 40 years ago. Okay. They are relaxed. They don't care if you come up to them. They know that car is going to sell, and so they are in the driver's seat. You are at their whim. It's wild. I couldn't believe every place I went, Greg. So it's your most pleasurable car buying. Like you like you and I are close to contemporary. You're a little younger than me, but I, I'm thinking I've probably yeah, I bought. I, stop that. I've probably bought maybe <laughs> six new cars. Like maybe I bought six new cars. All on my own. Like maybe my first one was I was 26, 27. Before that, kind of getting help from parents and and getting a, an, an old jalopy that they were done with. But probably I've bought six, seven cars. You've probably bought five or six cars in your life that are new. Yeah. And I mean, we have been in a truly incredible position where my wife has been in a company vehicle fully paid for by the company for the last 10 years. So now we're growing up and actually having to rediscover the art of buying a car so it's been a while it's really it's been a while for us uh but you know you said is it a joy for me out no 
Because on the flip side, you see a car, it's like buying a stinking house in Toronto now. You see a car you're like, and you're like, well, uh, are you going to put some money down? I'm like, I haven't even test drove it yet. Yeah, but there's this guy over there who wants to come and uh, get the key from me right now. Uh, it's almost at that level. I I, I think if, if it were allowed, you'd see bidding wars on car lots for for quite like anything that's bigger than a sedan, like a, a standard car. If you're looking to get into anything that has more than four seats in it, they're just not on the lots, Greg. Like, they are so backed up. And so, yeah, I like that the salesperson isn't pressuring me to sign. What can I do to get you into this car, sir? But unfortunately, we're at the point where it's like, well, you don't want it? Get out of my way. I got another person to sell this to. You you mentioned to me a while ago that even the consideration of electric means you're it, it means you're a battery powered car. It means you're waiting months, like not a couple months. months, months, a lot more than two or three months. You're looking at anywhere from if you want basically a battery in a car right now, you're not buying it. I mean, you can put your name on a wait list. What's happening right now are the 2023 models will start to be built soon. Some are already being built. So you know, if January you might be able to get into one of those vehicles. So you could go in and say, hi, I want to reserve this vehicle with a battery in it. And then they're going to say, that's great. In January, you can get into this car. I, I, I Yeah, it, it is just... Um, but this is what we've been talking about, Greg. Like, you, off air, you, Shiva, and I, uh, uh, Gord and Dave Bradley, we are taught the cost of everything, right, is going up. Supply chain is part of that. There's all sorts of other factors, but this is, it just goes into, I think, what everybody's talking about. The cost of living is going up. The availability of stuff we were just so used to having at our fingertips within seconds, that's slipping away really fast. Now, I know, look, um, you mentioned these, uh, these sales, uh, uh, guys and gals are, are relaxed, but are, there's, to me, their sales are, are still down from what I see. We're down about 13% from the first seven months of 2019, the first seven months of 2021. I'm looking at this. Sales were down 13%. And I got to think a lot of households are thinking we can make it on one car because uh, Buddy or somebody uh, works at home. So you don't have two people getting out of the driveway at 830 every morning anymore, going totally different directions. Well, like, how are they relaxed? I know yesterday was 420, but come on. How relaxed can they really, how relaxed can they be? Were they just really mellow? Why are they mellow when it's hard to get cars on the lot and they're selling less of them? Okay, I think this is the answer to that. I, I There's a great Radio Lab uh, podcast out there about how the used and new car sales lots worked, right? They had quotas to meet each month. And to meet those quotas, basically, if they sold X number of cars, the, the big car brand, Ford or Chrysler or whoever, would kick in a ton of money to that dealership because they sold X number of cars. But to get there, Greg... They would have to sell cars at the end of the month at a huge loss. They were like, we don't care. We're going to take a bath on this because we have to move that car to mm-hmm. get the big money from the big automaker. You can't negotiate prices now. You see, you know, this is where we got into a couple of situations. We're like, okay, we're close on this, but we can knock like five grand off of this price, right? In both the new and used markets, every dealership said, no, that's the price. Like, if you want that, you take it. So the volume is down, but the sales prices are strong. They're not budging, huh. bud. Like, you have to pay the sticker price. Maybe you get 100 bucks off here and there, but it's not thousands anymore. There's no incentives to buy that car for you anymore as far as, like, money back in your pocket. The dealership 
and the salespeople, I think, are keeping the cash. I got a listener telling me right now, and I don't think it's an inside job. I don't think they're a car, a car dealer or a sales uh, person that says you should have waited until the end of the calendar year because there are a lot more That's desperate what everybody November, used December. to say. That's the old school. That's the old school. We got old school listeners. Are old you telling school. me 640's S- got old school listeners? I don't believe it. S-K-O-O-L. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's, yeah, there's, if you want a car right now, maybe, I mean, we'll see. I, 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 I Let's revisit on December 29th. That'll be a good December 29th topic to revisit. Will this car, st- yeah, I, will, I, will this car still be around when your five-year-old daughter is driving in 11 years from now? Oh, can my five-year-old please just never actually have to drive a vehicle? Can they please drive themselves by then? No, so, no. you don't want yes, that. You want the experience. No, you no. don't. I, I, I spun cars around in the middle of roads at 2 in the morning because I didn't know how to break in ice. No, get my kid out. I know they behind. share your DNA. Uh, stop. You know, enough of this bubble wrap stuff. When will you emerge in the next, you know, I know, I know you've been hiding under blankets the last kid- 26 months okay i'd let my kids get on the subway alone i don't need to bubble wrap her (laughs) cars suck let's just embrace the technology anyways i i yeah i'd love to like this is i'd love to hear how other people are doing pal we should there's a guy who i came across who actually Mm. helps people buy cars we should have him on he'll go and negotiate for you in hopes of getting a better Okay. Deal? Can he? I, I got a couple of vacation days I want to add in late August. Can he help me with that also? Like, is this a, is this a real wheeler dealer? No, sir. Okay, fine. No, sir. Fine. All right. I went there. Jason Chapman, <laughs> executive producer. Thanks so much for the time. Pleasure. Uh, we get to chat with our uh, chatterbox. I love the Thursday one. We drill deep into provincial politics. We've got two brilliant people on that uh, front. Sabrina Nanji from uh, QP Observer. Nice to have you. Thanks for coming back. Happy Thursday. It, it, yep, yep. Both things are true. And Alan Carter, 640 Toronto radio host, uh, man about town, global news anchor, hosts uh, Focus Ontario on Sunday. Will you be on Focus Ontario this week? That's in my. That's always in my Sunday late morning calendar to to watch Focus Ontario. Are you hosting this week? <laughs> what? Yeah, 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 I am. And uh, I got a great interview all about the uh, Canada uh, COVID alert app. You still got that thing on your phone? Why do you have that thing on your phone? That's uh, our uh, subject this weekend. I think I have a back page with a couple old Angry Birds games that I haven't... (laughs) I can never tell which one's going off. I'm like, your birds want you back. Or someone popped with, you know, COVID positivity in, uh, in like September of 2020. I remember thinking that would be really important and then... That would thing would need an update once in a while, and you're like, I haven't been anywhere in the last seven hours. Who's got COVID? Boy, well, the thing the thing doesn't work, but uh, but I'll leave that for the show. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, well, that's the, that's a, that's a tease. Uh, that's a dramatic tease for uh, for late <laughs> Sunday morning uh, viewing. All right, so we're gonna fly. I I, I definitely want to get to poll numbers. I think there's so many fascinating things this morning uh, about that, but. You know, a lot of lot of stuff about masks. We'll fly with them in Canada for the next few weeks at least. The CDC is going to appeal a judge's ruling um, deeming the regulations an, an overreach. Um, but I wonder about beyond the obvious, what we're going to do, what the three of us will do to stay safe, look out for others, all that stuff. Sabrina, let me ask you if you think there's a political danger next fall for the Democrats with this. We've been all judging, well, you know, how much of politics are our COVID policies the last few months? How much is the objection from the opposition parties or what the Ford government's doing or even at the federal level? It, it, it's hard to separate, isn't it? 
Yeah. And I think, you know, clearly masks and mask mandates have become a a political hot potato, you know, and and it's not going to end anytime soon. I mean, just if you look in Ontario, you know, we'd be kind of silly to think that politics isn't playing some role in the decision here to to lift broader mandates. We're just a couple of weeks out from when Ontarians head to the polls. Uh, I mean, frankly, I'm I'm kind of exhausted by this back and forth. I think some of the celebration, you know, of this removal of masks on on um, planes like south of the border, uh, you know, of course, they're not fun to wear. Of course, they're a pain in the butt uh, and they feel so good to take off. And I think the underlying message that people are hearing from that is, you know, everything's OK. It's going to be OK, which is really a refreshing vibe after two years of, of this pandemic. But it, it's not quite reality. You know, this this thing isn't over yet. Uh, we're already hearing in Ontario, you know, from our science table advisors that there, there's likely going to be a little bit of a, a bump in transmissions because of the, the holiday uh, gatherings over Easter. Uh, you know, personally, I'll probably still be wearing my mask on on flights, regardless, even, you know, if and when they, they lift uh, closer to home. Mm. But I think, you know, this is going to be uh, politically fraught and, and that's not going to end anytime soon. It's tricky, right? Isn't it, Alan? And, and I got to think there are Democrats um, that that look at what happens. In, and you and I know and Sabrina knows, too, and most of our audience knows that midterm election is sometimes it's just a slaughterhouse. It even was for Bill Clinton in 1994. It was for Trump. He lost control of the House in 2018. It was for it was for George W. Bush in between his two presidencies. It's it, it ends up being a reckoning. Your job's not on the line, but it's also your job to keep as many Senate and House seats as you can so you can get things done. Well, and the reckoning for the Democrats is going to be, you know, because the midterms are rarely good for an incumbent president. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's going to happen is is that he's probably going to lose control of at least, you know, one level, if not both. And then the question will be, well, what did you get done when you actually had control of both chambers? And uh, mm. I, I, I don't, I, I don't know if it adds up to all that much. I don't think they, I don't think Biden got as much through as he thought he would when he had control of both houses. Um, in terms of masks, though, um, I don't know about you, but I look better with a mask. So, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, I it, it helps my uh, my sex appeal. I look good in a mask. So, uh, and I think that that is the appeal that we should uh, start saying to people. Forget about this. You're helping other people. You know, like, forget about the kumbaya. Two years into this thing, we don't want to help anybody at all. We're just all about ourselves. I think that that should be the new messaging. You look sexy in a mask. There are high schoolers covering up their acne on their chins and cheeks with it. There's no (laughs) doubt about that. And I'm not, I don't, you know, I'm not uh, saying that's coming directly reporting from the Brady household, but I know I see my kids, friends, and I'm like, I, it, it is getting into that era of 15, 16 year old boys being very self-conscious. And I don't, I don't think sales of clearasil and oxy are quite, are, are quite as striking, Alan, as they were during our generation. We'd have to really, you know, we couldn't mask up for a, for a dance. We were, we were deep into that, uh, the Stridex for weeks on end to make sure we could get clear. It's all the mystery. That's all. <laughs> mystery that's the key. Um, so these numbers, Serena, let's go to you on the on the numbers. I, I'm trying to think who this is good for. Obviously, it's not bad news for the liberals to go up four points for sure. This uh, Ipsos Global poll has the liberals going 28 to 32 percent among decided voters. The Ford government dropping 35 to 32. The NDP is kind of languishing right now, down 24 to 23. Um, they got a lot of seats they're trying to protect here. But but I think the significant notation is 
14% remain undecided. And oftentimes those undecided voters stay with the incumbent. It's, it, they're still very much up for grabs here. But what's interesting to me is the conservatives have lost. Alan's talked about it on his show. You and I have talked about it a bunch. They've lost so many seats via attrition or or kind of the, the COVID ejections, if you will. They're down to 67 from where they were. And, uh, and 67 is barely going to hold on to a majority. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to come down to uh, the, uh, you know, hotly contested ridings. And you're right, you know, the conservatives have lost a lot of incumbents uh, for, for many different reasons. And incumbents tend to get a leg up on, on the ticket. You know, you can run on your record. You have party resources, uh, you know, name recognition. There, there's a lot of reasons why incumbents fare well. Um, but I think the latest poll numbers, not just, you know, Ipsos today, um, Main Street was also out this week. Uh, there, there's been a recent string of polls, uh, even Abacus today that, that, you know, I think the conservative war room is, you know, celebrating this weekend. Mm-hmm. They're basically on track to form government. They've got a shot at major- a, a majority, you know, um, high 30s, a low 40s percent support. That's pretty much what Doug Ford swept a majority with in 2018. For me, the more compelling race is for second place. Uh, and I think, frankly, it's a little embarrassing for the NDP. Their official opposition, um, you know, most seats than, than they've had in recent history right now now, you know, fair, they're, they're losing some of their own inc- incumbents too. Um, but, you know, th- they've kind of failed to capitalize on some of the Doug Ford government's, uh, you know, mistakes th- throughout the last four years. And of course, the liberal brand is still, you know, holding strong and, and liberal leader Stephen Del Duca must be happy as well, you know, uh, c- coming close to second and, and, you know, giving Doug Ford a run for his money. But I think, you know, the, the undecideds, that's a big number. And I mm-hmm. think the most telling thing for me is that, in the polls I've seen, there's not a lot of folks who feel like this is a change election. I think they're kind of okay with, uh, you know, steady as she goes, Ford, Ford steering the province for for another four years, and uh, that's a lot different than what we saw in 2018 when you know that that change election number that that's what kind of you know decimated the, the liberals, and now it seems like they're poised for a comeback. But you know, everyone will tell you the only poll that matters is the one on. E-Day, and, and that's coming up. Yeah, I mean, Alan, it couldn't have gone worse in 2018. Everybody saw the train coming. You even saw Kathleen Wynne say, I see the train coming about three weeks before everybody went to vote. And uh, and some of the people trying to barely hang on for those seats are like, please don't say that. But seven seats, 19%. It was always going to be a bounce back election for Stephen Del Duca, but they've got to be pleased. They're, they're getting their attention. Whether people agree with platforms or not, we're all talking about them. Yeah, yeah. Um... What does that translate into come election day? I, I'm, you know, there's a kind of perception, uh, a lack of perception of either of the NDP or the Liberals as a government in waiting. I don't see that voters are like, okay, yeah, you that, you know, either Horvath or Del Duca are ready to take the mantle of power. I, 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 the best case scenario for the opposition is that we get a minority. I think I, I don't see anything other than that. That that's. That's the worst case scenario for the uh, progressive conservatives because, of course, there's no such thing probably as a Doug Ford-led minority government. That, un- unless he's like you know like one or two seats shy of that, mm-hmm. then then that's a different deal. Uh, otherwise, you have Del Duca and Horvath will team up, and you know whoever's in second place will become premier. But even that, I think, is a long shot. I look at those numbers. There, I mean, it's pretty pretty solid support for the conservatives. It, some I, I think you're going to have to see a pandemic curveball 
to really change those numbers. Yeah, yeah, I'd say I'd say the same. Alan, I'll be listening at 12 uh, noon today. Sabrina, thanks always uh, for you coming on with us this morning. Have a great day. Thanks. Sabrina Nanji, Alan Carter. We haven't had our next guest on in a while. Uh, he's been on CNN a bunch of different times. John Spencer has a, a new book uh, coming out this summer called Connected Soldiers, and he's talked about urban warfare a fair bit. So I want to get right into it with a former major who was in the Iraq war as well. You and I have talked about urban battle and how almost the home team has a big advantage here. Is that still standing true as Russian tanks, Russian forces come in bigger numbers into these cities? Make no mistake, the all roads lead to urban. The Russians have to move to these urban areas and take them. And they have to take them away from people that are more motivated, like you said, know the terrain better have been preparing for weeks. So there'll still be a lot of urban warfare in this new war, basically, they're fighting over the eastern section of Donbass. I mean, even look at Mariupol. I mean, Mariupol is, yeah. is defying some people's estimates. It's not defying mine. We were talking about five weeks ago. When you have a committed defender, he can hold, it takes 10 times the amount of force. And that's, we're actually seeing one to 15. So 15,000 Russians to about 400 to 1,000 left defenders. And it's taken eight weeks to, to take Mariupol. Uh, and they're still holding out. It's like the Alamo for them. Absolutely, they still have the advantage. You're right, though, the complexity of urban warfare, especially when you have civilians that take arms, they're no longer civilians, they're combatants. Uh, but Russia, that's in the context that Russia follows the laws of armed conflict. And clearly, since we last spoke, they don't. The war crime list is in the thousands of documented war crimes Retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer is joining us on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. His book, Connected Soldiers, uh, out later this summer. Um, I, I want to ask about, about that morale factor for the Russians. There was a, a documented uh, eighth Russian general that had been killed uh, through this process. They obviously saw a large uh, ship of theirs sink last week, rather infamously. Um, I, I know the tech and the ability to keep in touch with with, you know, the news has probably changed from 2003 to 2022. Of course, it has put us in the in the mind, if you can, of of how a Russian soldier, a 20 year old who never would have anticipated this six months ago, let alone two years ago, it, they're conscripted into the military in Russia. We should remind people. I mean, can they really have have the heart, the soul, the fire for this that someone de defending their own street and their own family and their own house could? No, they're, they're clearly at the disadvantage there. And, and you're right. From my from my book, I highlight 2003, 2008, and 2018. The world changes, and so does the military that we fight within. Uh, so the Russian soldiers have access, but they also have access to the propaganda and the brainwashing that's coming from Russia, trying to keep them to go. But the link between them and their families is also an interesting link because uh, as Ukrainians understand this, every time they capture Russian soldiers or they find a, a dead Russian soldier, they're being really smart about trying to communicate back to the Russian people because there's mothers, wives, even if they think they're fighting for a valiant cause. Absolutely, they're at the extreme disadvantage fighting for in Ukraine against a Ukrainian who's fighting for their literal survival of them, their families and their nation as to, to right to be free. So you'll never overcome that. And this is the kind of the problem with looking at on paper, the Russian military, right? Mm -hmm. So we look at the numbers, the number of artillery rounds, the number of tanks, when it comes down to like we've highlighted before, when it comes down to fighting, uh, it, it matters more that they have the will to fight. They're fighting for a cause they believe in. 
But yeah, they're losing generals left and right because they don't trust their junior leaders. It's a weakness in their systems that you know we, the Canadian military, all of our powerful militaries don't have that weakness. We, we trust individual leaders all the way down to ground. So despite what you see on paper about to happen, that's a major factor of these units being able to even move forward and fight is their will to fight and their motivation, their connection to their families, um, what they're hearing from other sources. I mean, Russians are going to do everything they can to control that information. I watched your um, rather visceral reaction. This is two weekends ago now when we started seeing all those images uh, from Buka. And uh, and I, I saw you talk about boots on the ground. And I remember I remember you saying we played it on our show uh, and, and you said, I know what this means when I'm saying this. And and many of the atrocities we we saw, it, it was everything every army tries to avoid. It must have rattled you from head to toe. It, it rattled all of us. If anything, it, it you know, we started accepting it as well. It's on TV every night. It's happening. I think it energized most of us to really push more on shows like mine or to push politicians and say, we're not doing enough right now. And that was certainly your message two weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I was really, like you said, I was shaken. I knew what I was saying. I had my wife still serves. Um, you know, I got a lot of really criticism for that statement. And look, the Ukrainians aren't asking us to put boots on the ground. They're asking for weapons that they can fight Russia for us. Russia is a terrorist with a nuclear bomb. It's a bully. It's it's a threat to Eastern Europe. And then who knows what else? Um, Ukrainians aren't asking for it. But after seeing Buka and my I've I've held dead children in my arms. I have children. Just that that genocide that we witnessed. Yes, you're right. Bad, bad soldiers do bad things. But this was systematic, organized genocide. So war crimes is one term war wars of humanity. Um, and genocide, our president spoke his mind, and I think he's right. So, see, so the point is, Ukraine never asked for boots on the ground. Would I be willing to fight for them? Yeah, absolutely. So, let me just put my own self in that. Um, and I tried to help in every way I can, you know, that and mm-hmm. information is power, but they, they can't fight if they don't have the right tools. So, hopefully, everybody, and it has happened, um, people, people like you in the free press which is the power of democracy, being able to push the message to our democratically elected leaders to do more, do it faster, do it now. It's uh, I remember seeing Oliver Stone's platoon in in the movie theater and I was 14. And that scene where uh, Willem Dafoe's Elias stops Tom Berenger's Barnes from killing the little girl. They're going to torch the village and all that stuff. So those those conflicts, you know, again, it's, it's dramatized at the same time. That's just not what I see with Russia. I see everything you see. I see something that is systemic. I see something that is organized. It is one thing, again, to you know, it, it not to defend it for a Russian soldier to say who's a civilian and who isn't. But you know they're not at a train station, and you know they're not in a school, and you know they're not at a hospital, and you like like there are lines that have clearly been crossed. Everybody's got a fight, and a fight is a fight, and. Everybody will have to fight dirty when it comes to, to military uh, conflict. Yes, of course. But but there's pure and obvious lines that are crossed here, and we can see them. Yeah, we as a world drew those lines. We call them the, line, the laws of war, the laws of international humanitarian law. You name it. There's, there's so many laws that we've said after World War II. And actually, when war started, they're, they're, they're very old. The, these lines that we all draw, like, it is not acceptable to do this. Now, the problems that we're seeing today is that we created these rules and we created these institutions to collectively 
it you know make sure that people follow them um like the united nations uh things like that that i it's showing an error when there's so many checks and balances that somebody can blatantly commit genocide in front of all of our eyes and yes i know it's happened in the past i know it's still happening around the world in other places uh, that i i care about those but this is our moment this is as the world to say no like we can stop this now now do i want to start world war 3 uh, no. Do I want to start nuclear war? No. Do I want somebody to stop Russia? Yes. Ukraine has volunteered. Let me do that. We just have to arm them with the weapons that it takes. My last one for you is whether you think or not, um, even just even just having a pedestrian knowledge of the Geneva Convention, is there anything you see Ukraine doing that you don't love, that you say, I, I don't love it, but I almost understand I, those first couple of weeks. I don't think we talked about this last time. I didn't, I don't love parading Russians out in news conferences and having them talk and questions. I, it, 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 clearly we don't like that when, you know, ISIS does that, or that happens in the middle East with us soldiers. So I don't love that. Is there anything else you're seeing or like th- there is just a, it is on and, and it's war and they have to do what they have to do to protect their own country. They didn't invade. They didn't ask for this invasion. So they must use any method to defend themselves here. How do you view it? Yeah, absolutely. There have been a couple of videos of, you know, one out of a million of a Ukrainian soldier not doing the right thing. And that that I'm not saying that happens in war either. I've had an experience personally um, with one of my soldiers, but he was identified, taken out of the fight, mm-hmm. put to justice recognized by everybody that the actions were wrong. Ukraine has to keep the moral high ground, both ethically and morally within the the international law of armed conflict. They have to, but they have to be very careful. I agree with you parading that, you know, even the high, the captures of high, high level people in the one with the CNN access to the the pilots. I wouldn't have liked to seen that. I understand why they do it. And they're, they're teaching a masterclass in information operation, but they have to be careful when they do that. Um, yeah, I agree with you. The other ones, and there's been a couple instances of, look, we live in a world where all actions will be viewed around the world. So, Ukrainian actions should be viewed and then criticized. And then, same thing. We sh- um, these are two warring parties that should be following the rules. And when they aren't, we should call it out. Hey, John, what a great pleasure having you on. Thanks for uh, doing this for our audience here in, in Toronto. Uh, again, it's always informative. You bring such great emotion and 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 tactical concepts to it as well. Thanks for doing this for us. Thanks so much. I don't know when this uh, Shiba Siddiqui joins me. I don't know when this uh, Johnny Depp trial wraps up. I can't oh. I can't get a vibe for the timing of it, but but I'm all in. I'm all in. I, I should have even, you know, I, I should have foregone a nap yesterday and watched the testimony <laughs> live. It is on. I like you. Are, people are able to watch it online on a few different websites. Oh, absolutely. But it's hard to watch parts of it. Just seeing him like that, seeing him so vulnerable and hearing about the toxicity of their relationship. I I'm not enjoying it, but I can't look away. That's another thing. You're more to me. This is me. Me judging you now. So be ready for judgment. Brady <laughs> judgment. You're more willing to give a open mind to this defamation trial and it's Depp's trial against her in this case, not the other way around. You're more willing. I feel like to give an open mind to Johnny Depp than maybe if this was, is this because we feel like we know him or as I said yesterday, he went years dating famous people and we never heard about a problem domestically. This isn't somebody that had a problem early on. This may just be the boom toxic relationship. It never excuses abuse, verbal, physical, mental, any of it. It never does, but it may explain it that he got together with this person that 
that was awful for him and awful for her. I don't know Johnny Depp at all. So, I mean, I've seen who he's dated throughout the years, who he's been married to with Vanessa Paradis. He lived in, in France for a long time. He's got two kids. But his personal life, other than that, I've known nothing about him. I remember him from 21 Jump Street. That was, you know, that was a great, easy on the eyes watching him there. <laughs> but, I mean, now, uh, this is the first time I'm actually getting to see him and hear him when he's not acting or he's not in front of, you know, on, on a red carpet. And just him talking about his opioid addiction, his his struggle with alcohol, yeah. um, his withdrawal. It's hard to watch this. And I'm wondering, is she going to take the stand? Because right now she's being painted as this awful, awful person who's been manipulating and abusing him, both verbally, emotionally, physically abusing him. Uh, and I'm wondering if she's going to be speaking at all and she's going to have a chance to defend herself. So I, I was in I was in a relationship and I lived with somebody for two years and she's lovely and I was lovely, but it wasn't going to work out. And by the end, I'm just not even myself and she's not even herself. I'm sure like I'm sure everybody might say, yeah, that's been me one. Now, if it if it if that ends up being seven of those things occur and you're like, <laughs> I, like dysfunctional, toxic things, then then I think you need to look at a mirror. But when you're young and you have no money and you're trying to still find yourself. I, so I started living with her when I was 23 and she was 21 and we lived together about a year and a half. We got a cat together. I kept the cat, by the way. I didn't even oh. have to go to court to keep the cat. I love that cat. Um, but either way, it's, I was like, I, I, I wouldn't call anything abusive between us, but I would have said things and she would have said things. I would hope she would say, I, ne she never said to anybody else and I never said to anybody else. So toxic mixes among couples can happen. That was one for me by the end. It was, it, it was too bad. We're both good people. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, one important aspect of a relationship is you have to at least try to bring out the best in each other. And if you're not at your best, that's one thing. But if you're at your worst with someone, that's a clear sign you're in the wrong relationship. And it's not just a phase. It's not just tough times. And you were also very young. I mean, very 20, young. 21. Yeah. You guys are kids, right? And you're still learning how to navigate the world, how to navigate a healthy relationship, what that looks like for you, what you want out of life. Uh, so it's it's tough. So, I mean, just watching this, watching him and Amber, and there's also a big age difference between both of them, between Johnny and Amber. Yeah. And he talks about how childish she was and how immature she was whenever they would argue. It's 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 hard. It's hard to watch this. Here's a clip that uh, jumps out. Johnny Depp mentions that she threw a large uh, bottle at him. Small bottles are more likely to uh, like you got better aim with those. But this is awful. Johnny Depp says she threw the large bottle right at him. This was from the testimony yesterday. She threw the large bottle, made contact, and shattered everywhere. I, I honestly didn't, I didn't feel the pain at first at all. I felt no pain whatsoever. I felt heat, and I felt um, as if something were dripping down my hand, you know. Um, and then I looked down and realized that the, the tip of my finger had been severed. And he shows you his hand. Right, his middle he does finger do that. is crooked. His middle finger is not straight. It's I don't know. It's a lasting effect. I don't know what it is. It's it's isn't that hard? It's hard to see Johnny like this. Oh my goodness, you are uh, uh like we'll get you a Team Depp T-shirt printed out. No, no, out. but but hey, if she takes the stand next week, it might be right? worse. I know. Yes, I know. Like, I I want to hear what she has to say. Right now, it's just one sided. We're hearing all of what she did allegedly in their relationship, and then there's also that concept of. 
I mean, you know, it depends. I think that you can use your parents as an yeah. example, right? Of what kind of marriage your parents had. If you can, you know, learn from that, if they were happy, if they were not, we all know couples who've been married forever who are absolutely miserable. And then, you know, you see those people who are still in love as old people and it's very sweet and we like to see that. But here's one reason why he decided he stayed in the relationship. Small insults and teenage sort of high school tactics, bullying, if you will, was um, becoming too much. So why did you stay with Miss Heard given this type of behavior? That's a very complicated answer. I'm sure that it's somehow related to my father remaining stoic as my mother would beat him to death. I'm sure it'll had a lot to do with having been in a beautiful, wonderful 14, 15 year relationship with Vanessa, the mother of my children. Terrible, eh? To hear that? Awful, awful. And you don't often hear no. about a mother beating a father, right? I no. Mean, it's, it's, I mean, it, it, it happens, but no one talks about it as much as you do the other way around. So here, see, now we're getting to know him. And I don't know. Is it true? Is he acting? Is this the act of his life? Is he telling the truth? It's hard to discern. It's it's just it's difficult. Yeah. You see both of their faces like there's a close up in the courtroom when she, when he's talking and getting her reaction. It's it's tough because this was a couple that was very much in love at one point. I know we're tied for time. My parents will have been married 55 years in June. But one of the things that I thought was incredible was that they would argue. You're like, are you kidding? Like people that had you as a kid like to argue. Yes, they did. But I what I liked is they they would they would know who who would take the L during the argument. It would stop. It would get sorted out. I think they were that couple that like how you say never go to bed angry at your partner. And I feel like they didn't because really? I would hear them talking loudly at one thirty some mornings and going. But they work it out. And the couples wow. that don't and the couples that say they never argue ever. Those are the ones I'm suspicious of. Then I think somebody's miserable. Then I think there's a bad power dynamic and it's too tilted. I don't believe it. I don't don't believe believe it either. And I just so you know, before we go, I had uh, the opposite. I had parents that were married for 22 years. After 22 years, they they called it a day. They got divorced. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, the best thing for our family. And Mm -hmm. that was such a great example for me like you if you're not happy if you're miserable get out there you go good thing you and i are getting paid for this therapy i don't know how much but we're getting (laughs) it will invoice extra for this show thanks so much for listening to the toronto today podcast back with a live show to finish out the week and that's uh of course coming 5 30 to 9 o'clock on uh, radio player canada app or you can find us at 640 toronto.com thanks again for listening to our podcast we greatly appreciate it